Kia ora Aotearoa, Rebecca Hollis here. Welcome to Rebecca Live episode 331. Today's guest is Wade Jackson. He's a high performance business coach, been in the world of improv and stand up and all sorts of stuff for many years, a couple of decades actually. And what I'm interested to talk to him today about is this intersection between the skill sets and EQ with humans and with an improv to the translation into business, leadership teams, executive teams, how play can make you better in business, how play can help with connection, inspiration to the rest of the team, storytelling, and so much more. I hope your day is going awesome. I hope all is well with you. I've had a pretty good one, to be honest. Um, been pretty decent. My side's going quite well. I'm enjoying these uh, chats that I'm having with uh, people in more of this long-form discussion. I'm enjoying being able to let the conversation flow as it does and as it may and really find out what makes people tick, the story behind the story, the question behind the question and do some bit more creative digging and when I get to learn I like to share it on to you which is why I have my little thing that says learn, share, repeat on my wrist. So hopefully today we can do a little bit more of that. Without further ado, Wade Jackson. Kia ora Wade, how are you? Very well thanks, how are you doing? a-okay the sun is shining in san francisco silicon valley the the birds are out but it's starting to get cooled out just a little bit more so i was in new zealand what last week i think it was and you know it's always weird when you live on the different continents when you go back and forth because you'll be going into summer or going into winter and so you pop over and some, a bunch of people are getting like depressed because it's getting colder and a bunch of people are getting hyped because it's summer and then you just pop back out so it's weird to sort of logistically still be kind of kind of in both so um yeah, sorry for the little thing, but that's 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 what's going on. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, well, I'm not having that kind of roller coaster. I'm uh, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying that it's getting warmer. Yeah. So you come from a very long history within comedy and using skill sets that exist specifically within it. Now crossing over to this world of high performance uh, high performance coaching. Mm. I have not seen in my I'm only 37 years old, but I feel like I've seen quite a bit of stuff. Uh, interesting segue from skill sets within comedy into something like that so rewinding back just a little bit that's where you're at now rewinding back did you think you'd end up here (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no i'm not sure where here is i don't know where here is but no i didn't expect to be doing this work at all um i think around the age of 20 i started doing uh improvised comedy at university um and I was doing sketch comedy as well. So I was doing sketch comedy writing simply as a uh, adjunct to my um, arts degree. And uh, yeah, I re- remember thinking that, um, yeah, I wouldn't have articulated it as clearly as this, but I remembered thinking I'm going to sacrifice security for freedom. I'm not going to go and get a job like all my peers were doing. I'm just going to uh, do what I want to do. Um, and what I was really passionate about was performing, which is kind of weird because I was actually a shy, introverted kid growing up. So uh, the arts have been really good for me, got, got me to access a part of me that I wouldn't uh, normally have accessed. And so, yeah, and so I just, um, and when you choose, when you choose freedom, when you choose to be a full-time actor, comedian in New Zealand, you're choosing poverty, <laughs> you're, choosing <laughs> you're choosing unemployment. So I actively chose that. And I guess the irony now is the, the skills that I've spent the last 30 years learning are the, exactly the same skill set that business today needs. Um, yeah, but it, did, but it, didn't, it wasn't a plan. It all happened by accident. So um, I, was, uh, I did some touring in 2000, 
Uh, I went to Chicago and saw some um, having your own improv theater. I went to the Loose Moose Theater in Calgary um, and, and saw how you could run a volunteer system. And then I did some shows in New York later that year and saw that you could have a tiny theater. So uh, I think I came back from, I remember sitting on the subway in New York going, I know what I do when I'm going to get back to New Zealand. I'm going to go and um, I'm going to open my own improv theater. And uh, six weeks later, I had signed a lease. I had no money. I was still on the benefit. Uh, and I, but I'd gone to people, um, uh, Kevin Roberts, who was running Saatchi and Saatchi at the time, and said, I need to borrow some money. Uh, what for? He's like, you're crazy, but here's some money that I'll lend you. Uh, so he was generous in that. And I raised some, raised some funds and um, built, a, built a theater in um, K Road. And that was the Covert Theater, named Covert because I thought it was going to be some small venue somewhere. Yeah, and so um, uh, that ran, ran, ran for four years. I started getting into the corporate stuff then. So really how I got into the corporate stuff was people would come and see our shows and go, I loved how you guys work together. Can you get my teams working together like that? And that's how I got into it. Very cool. Okay, so a couple of things to get through there. The, um, I've always seen, I've talked about it a, a, a quite a few times, there's always a certain skill set or something that I've seen within elite export athletes, um, ex-military or SAS, and then CEOs. And I don't know what it is, but there's some little strand of crazy or something that, that, that bubbles across that line. But then going from comedy into the human skills of business and stuff, you know, um, it's not often that you see that crossover that, that I've really seen before. What was the, was the tipping point, the feedback that you were getting from all of the stuff that you were doing, realizing, hey, there's actually a bigger conversation here? Because I'm sure you probably didn't even see that was a thing yet, right? No, not at all. So I was doing, so I was just doing, I was doing team building work and presentation coaching based on the improv principles. And it started getting, it was going really well, but then it started getting tricky. People would say to me like, um, oh, how does this work and why does this work? And are you a psychologist? And, you know, every act is an amateur psychologist because the actor's job is to recreate the human experience on, on stage. You know, a definition of theater is life recreated artificially. So, um, but I was just like, nah, I'm just a comedian, bro. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why this is working. I just, I just know it does. So then I had to jump into the world of science. So that's what I've been for the last 20 odd years. So I hold postgrad qualifications in drama, but also hold it in um, science. And when I was younger, I'd lived in Japan. So I got to experience what most straight white Kiwi guys don't get to experience. And that's what it's like to live as a minority. Because when you're six foot two, blonde, blue eyed, living in rural Japan in the early 90s, you stand out. So um, I was gaijin, uh, which is their word yeah. for um, out foreigner. You know, I was the outside person from the, for the two years that I lived there full time. Um, but I was also training martial arts over there. So I had that kind of, and that was, that was kind of wait, the life-changing wait, 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 You're in Japan teaching them martial arts? No, 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 no. <laughs> I was teaching the, kids martial, teaching the kids martial arts, but I was learning martial arts. So I, was, oh, okay. I, was, I was having the crap kicked out of me six nights a week. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, that was quite a life-changing experience. Is yeah. your uh, Nihongo Totemo Jozu? Totemo Jozu, pera pera hanaseru. <laughs> oh dude you still got it i only know a couple yeah. of the words you got, you got all the different things i love it um yeah, yeah. no it was uh that i was very easy for me to start to understand japanese because it was the same vowels as maori it was a e r o u not i a e o u so when i was seeing it i was i guess like reading i guess maori in some respects but i want to go back to you something you said before with around um uh, you chose security for freedom now 
No, sacrifice security for freedom. Sa- sacrifice, yeah, yeah. yeah sa- you sacrifice yeah, yeah. security for freedom. But in 2022, that would be kind of a empowering thing to do now. You know, you want to be free and, and the workforce has changed and COVID's changed, like just all this workforce stuff. But going back then, the same way I felt as a young entrepreneur in the early 2000s, whatever it was, like you're almost a loser. Now it's cool. I'm sure going back <laughs> even further than that, sacrificing security for freedom you must have been really crazy or really seen as that outcast of the society because there probably were with it was there anyone really else around in your ecosystem that was actually choosing to sacrifice security for freedom for i guess uh, like less life regret um there were some people you know if you do if you're gonna be a full-time actor in new zealand that's what you're kind of choosing yeah there's very few people who i've been one of the fortunate few have made a career out of it but yeah most of them um only, only the acting world in my ecosystem, but it was definitely, you know, it was, you know, eyebrows raised for sure. It was a bit, it was, a, it, was a, it was an unusual thing to do. Most, most of my peers were going off uh, and getting jobs. Did you feel judged? So on the come up, a lot of, um, you know, people if they go around, they travel and they do all this and stuff. They, they sort of come back and did, did your peers sort of look down upon you when you sort of connect back up with them because you're off doing something else and you weren't going to this thing and ticking the box and you weren't getting married with the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and the dog or whatever it is was yeah. there tension in the early career from others um the, I, I remember getting some comments like i was a bit weird and unusual uh, i know a friend of mine's uh, wife said that he was like, he's weird like who does that you know <laughs> who does that for a career um so there was those kind of judgments but that just you know just didn't bother me whatsoever so yeah. yeah. No, good on you. Okay, so then you you said something before as well, which I was just keen to dig into. You said the these improv principles. So, yes. you know, for those that, um, I guess, aren't aware or, or how it works, what is this world of improv and what are these principles? Well, the the, the way that I, I usually um, use for people a, bit, a little bit older, like yourself, Robert, is, Robert, is um, you know, um, have you seen whose lines it anyway? So that's kind of been people, that people kind of go, oh, okay, that's improv. That's that's one part of it. That's kind of almost like improv stand up. How fast can you be funny for TV? Uh, but the, some of the principles uh, are very well known. Like one of them is yes and, uh, and that gets taught at the Stanford Design School. Uh, that gets taught in um, all sorts of different places outside of improv. So they call it applied improv now. So if you do an MBA at Boston University, uh, you'll spend the first six weeks doing improv. Um, basically because of the principles are around how do you how do you uh, listen and collaborate how do you sacrifice your ego for the sake of the group um, how do you have that confidence and the quick thinking skills so they're just they're just life skills really I mean we're improvising right now we have no script we're making it up moment to moment to moment uh, and that's what we do in improv but the, with the idea of telling a story so are the principles is there a set thing are there three are there five is oh, there like no, some master no, thing no, no, there's, there's, I, I teach, the, the two main ones that I teach for, for improv is, uh, one is to be present. So it's a, it's a form of active mindfulness. How do you be fully present in the moment? And what I, what, what's taken me almost three decades to understand is that I don't have to improvise, I don't have to be um, funny and quick thinking, I just have to be fully present and things will emerge. So there's a saying in improv, you don't, you don't uh, invent gold, you discover it. If you're in your head thinking, thinking, thinking and analyzing and all that kind of stuff, you're going to miss the moment. You're going to miss what your partner is saying. So everything you need in an improv scene is from your partner. So it's very different to stand up comedy, which is like, you know, am I funny? 
Whereas improv comedy is how well am I working together? So being present is the one principle. And the second principle is what I call uh, uh, having or being a generative spirit. And that means you come with the pure intention to co-create, which means you have to be able to sacrifice your ego when you're working together. That's straight into corporate executive C-suite team building. I, t- I, t- I start to see the ch- I start to see the segue. The the thing on the be present thing too is you know a lot of times they'll they'll talk about you know feedback for others will be when someone is saying whatever they got to say in the meeting and the next person that actually wants to talk isn't actually listening. They're just waiting to say the thing that they actually want to say. So their brain is stuck, is almost fast forwarded to the point waiting for it to catch up to then actually go do the thing. You, you're yeah. saying because the majority of people do that and essentially forward to skip actually bring it back to pause and play within the moment right yes yeah so we talk about there's, there's different i teach five different levels of listening so the first one is not listening so it's just responsive listening you're waiting for your turn to talk you're i say to you oh how was your weekend you tell me about your snowboarding weekend and then i i'm just sitting here going i'll wait till he's finished i'll tell him about my weekend All right so there's that kind of listening and then there's that you know, selective listening. So it just ties into confirmation bias. I've, I'm listening to you, but I've already, I just don't believe what you're saying because it's not fitting in my belief system. So I disregard stuff. So I just believe what I pick out, what I want to believe. And that's where you're still staying in your own worldview. Then you get into attentive listening. So you're starting to listen from the head. So you're starting to open the door to get outside of your own worldview into somebody else's. And then you've got um, empathic listening. So that's where I listen to understand someone. And then in improv, we talk about generative listening. And that's the yes and. So the yes, I'll affirm and accept what you're saying. And the and was, was that I will generate with you. I'll co-create with you. So it's getting into that state of co-creation. But it requires you to be fully present in that moment. So you can hear what the person's saying, what their intention is, uh, and be guided by that. So those five stages of listening, Wade, the big question here is for those that are in committed, healthy, loving, lifelong relationships with their partners, what type of listening do uh, husbands who don't listen have what type what type of listen is that one <laughs> <laughs> they all they all <laughs> we, we we play in all five like my wife will know like if i come home and i say to her uh you know how was your day she knows that i'm just dying to tell her some good news that's happened to me like that, that's my opening line and she'll just she'll just flick it back she'll go okay so what happened you know <laughs> so, so you pick up and you've been in those relationships for a long time you pick up the cues of uh of each other but to, the, to that though, there's something to, um, so basketball was what was something that I could, I, I, I know what you're talking about with this, uh, this sort of real time ebb and flow and, and weave. And there'd be some people that we'd play with when we would be on the court. Um, when I was younger, I used to play, I ended up playing basketball for Canterbury and basketball for New Zealand as well as a point guard. But certain people would be on the floor and I could feel the energy and it would just be silence without even having to like, talk i know he's cutting i know he's coming in i got the bounce pass there and people are moving and then some people you're you're really struggling like you're trying to get the eye contact or your body's trying to move or whatever it is you're not getting it the same and so i'm imagining with improv it's probably the same thing these organic fits or i've been i randomly saw this video of um a freestyle was it like a samba or dance class or something and they had to do this improvised free-flowing dance and all of a sudden you're just watching these two bodies and minds meld in in real time and Mm. it's 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 art it's special it's it's something now within improv 
I'm imagining it's pretty much this exact same thing of like the other people's energy, the eyes, like just explain to me the dynamics of, I guess, the, the energy transference of these real-time situations. Cause I'm wondering if there's some crossover within sport as well. I mean, surely, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, what you're talking about there is that flow state. Yeah. So I call it, I like call it the play state because I don't think play is just an activity. It's also a, a mindset. Um, so you get into that absolutely an improv you get, and it's just magical. It's always easier to, uh, improvise with people you, you you feel safe with. So a big part of improv and what we do at the COVID Theatre and what I do in my corporate work is to create that psychologically safe environment. Uh, so because um, people talk about, you know, trust being the foundation for high-performing teams, but really there's a precursor to that, and that's courage and vulnerability. Because in improv, you're stepping out not knowing what you're going to do or say next. So that requires you to be incredibly vulnerable. And you're not bringing anything. It's not like you're bringing on an instrument or an easel or to paint or anything like that. It's just you. So you have to be able to have that courage to step into that space and then that vulnerability to be really open uh, with each other. And that creates the safe environment. That's what, then I kind of go, if I feel safe with you, if I kind of, that, that vulnerability creates, that self-revelation really kind of creates an intimacy. And that's when I mm. connect. And then, then I feel safe as opposed to go, go straight to trust, right? Because even in, if I don't know someone, it's not that I'm going to mistrust or distrust them. There's just an absence of trust until I get to know them better. So using the improv exercises creates that kind of high trust environment for, for teams. So, so in the snowboard world to that on the trust, there's always a thing when I was doing snowboard instructing, it was the only thing they would, the key thing was like safety, fun, learning, safety, fun, learning. If they don't feel safe, they're not going to, um, uh, have fun if they're not having fun they're not going to learn and it's like safety fun learning safety fun learning mm -hmm. and the the they're going for the the byproduct of number three but you've got to lock in number one first like are they safe do they feel that and it, it's right. been really kind of cool to watch in the business world of exactly to say um wait around the psychological safety thing and so many of these different and I guess in all of these businesses, they the best outcomes are always when you know the employees are feel empowered and, and engaged and really um like in, embrace for all they are and all the rest of it. But that comes if they don't feel psychologically safe for what to do it too. And even for me, I'm extremely, I guess, outgoing in many respects, but I would still feel kind of fearful of having to do improv anything. Cause it's like, I'm not a comedian. Like how do you help yeah. a group of people that don't see themselves as something like, do you know what I mean? Like, cause there's yeah, obviously yeah. a mental disconnect to start with. So how does yeah, that so usually play out? So we don't get them to do, we don't teach, I'm not there to teach them to become improv performers. So I'm just using the same exercises we use to perform on stage. I'm using it for them to lower their barriers, um, get to see each other, connect with each other, have fun. I mean, laughter is the fastest way for people to connect. And that's why my sessions are so popular is because people are having fun. They're playful. And, and we're not just, as a species, we're not just built um, to play. We're built through play. If you look at, you've got young kids, right? You'll look at, you know, you, if, they're, if they, they will, you, they don't learn by dad lecturing at them. They learn by playing, yeah, by doing, experiential. It becomes embodied learning. So it's mind-body learning, not just theoretical in the head. So, you know, I don't, I don't, in my sessions, I don't lecture people, but we play. So we use the same exercises simply to achieve the same outcomes, but, but as far as um, safety and trust, but not, not to become improv comedians. Yeah. So this moment right one of the the email when it came through talk before we had a catch-up it was saying you know um, according to the latest research that deep dove into the brewing connection crisis in the workforce 83 percent of employees felt that they don't have play opportunities and activities to support and drive connection so now we're segwaying into i guess a little bit more on, on the business side of things so 
this data, how did this start to come about and what's your, I guess, top line macro looking at, I guess, the problem or issue that we actually have within the, the common workplaces within Aotearoa and beyond? I think there's two two main problems for me. Is one is that we've we've been we've been taught that um, work and play are opposites, and they're not. Work work is you know the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is death. So if you're not playing, you're slowly dying. Yeah. And so I see work as being a meaningful play. How do we make this? You know, we're, we're a team is a group of like-minded individuals coming together to achieve a shared outcome. Yeah. So they so how do we make that meaningful for them? And the second thing is also um, it's more based around the storytelling. I don't think enough uh, leaders, senior leaders especially, are telling um, are telling that purpose story of the organisation and getting people to kind of tap into why, how they can contribute. Because work, work's just one way of contribution. It's not the only way. You can contribute through, you know, society or community, church, whatever it may be, family. But work is a, if you think of how many hours you spend at work, uh, taking sleep into account, you probably spend more work, more time at work with the, than you do with your loved ones. So it's a missed opportunity if we don't make that meaningful uh, and tie in. I mean, it's basic human existential angst, right? What's the meaning of life? If, if I get, if I'm lucky to live a long life, I want it to have some kind of meaning. And so leaders should be telling that kind of story around: this is why our company exists. This is our purpose. This is how we add value to the community. And this is the part that you play. But I just see. You know, I call them my corporate zombies, right? People just kind of clocking in, clocking out, and do not know how they contribute. And that's why we have this great disconnect and great resi- resignation, is that people are just kind of going like, especially you hit you know, your 40s, and you kind of go, Jesus, is this it? Is this it? And so they're not mm. being, they're not, they're not connecting how, how what they do on a day-to-day basis connects to the overarching picture and, and how that company organization offers value to the community. So you just brought up two um, things there, which I wanted to jump in on. You were talking about you know this great resignation being, I guess, referred to as this um, the great disconnect. What does that mean practically? And has this been what's spurred this on, or what's amplified it? And where's this? Where do you feel this is currently going? Well, we've got that mindset. You know, one of the mindsets is that you know the purpose of business is to make money. And for me, that's not the case at all. The purpose of that's just making money is just ticket to the game. If you're not making money, you can't play the game. That's it. The purpose of business is how does it add value? Because money will always follow value. If you add, if, you know, that's what I learned. If I, you know, I went from poor, starving actor to successful entrepreneurs simply because I uh, answered the question, how can I add more value? So that, that's, the, that's the key thing. So when we've got leaders who are just kind of going bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, that's going to create a disconnect. You've got leaders who are kind of going, look, this is how we add value. And this is the part that you play in it, then that's going to be more meaningful. So people are going to be more connected, more engaged uh, with their work on a daily basis because they understand what they're doing, whether they're working data entry in the back office, they understand how that plays that little part in their overarching purpose. So that, I think that's really the, one of the key things there. When you were talking about, you know, these people that, you know, hitting their 40s, they're clocking in, is this it, is this it? You know, what, what percentage of them... What percentage of employees, 40 plus, don't actually know why they're doing what they do, you think? Well, I get, I get the, the privilege to go into lots of different organizations, and um, I would say the majority. That's why I think. That's why really? I, think, I would say, I'd say so. I think that's why um, we have the mental health statistics that we do. I mean, what's the, what's, I mean, one of the highest rates are, you know, men in, their, men in their 40s and early 50s are one of the highest uh, suicide rates in New Zealand. And I think that's just kind of like, you know, people are going, hell, what's the point? Wow, and it's the, it's that question of is this it? Is this it? Is yeah, this well, I, it? I, 
when I ask them what, you know, how, what, how do they contribute? What do they do? Most people can't articulate it. Most people aren't. So, and, and that's, and that's kind of, you know, it's one of the factors of happiness. If you look at the different, different ways you could be happy because happiness is this kind of, we kind of go happiness, but you know, there's relief as a form of happiness. You know, if I'm standing on your foot and then I get off your foot, I'm over 100 kilos. If I get off your foot, you'll go, oh, that feels better. You'll be happy, right? It's relief. So some people, their relief is just get to the end of the working week. You're in a job that they don't like or don't understand or don't connect with. And they're just kind of, okay, I'll change state. They'll hit the bottle, or whatever it may be, right? What it, escapism, right? Escapism, yeah, yeah. escapism, yep. Yeah, pick your addiction. Um, and then, then you've got others, you know, there's the thing and the society has told us that pleasure is the is the big um, happiness one. So I'll be happy when I get the new car or you know, the, 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 new, the next bigger thing. So that keeps you on that hedonic treadmill of I'll be happy when. Yep, so we keep waiting. In Dr. Seuss, oh, the places you'll go, which you must read to your children, uh, is, um, you know, the wait, they call it the waiting place. You know, I'll be happy, I'll be happy later. And then you've got the, you know, the excitement, looking forward to things. And this is, these are all fine. These types of happiness is all fine. Um, you've got the excitement of things, but they're temporary. The one that um, you've got, you get happiness from a sense of belonging, but the key one that doesn't really get talked about is that kind of contentment, which is a ongoing form of happiness bubbling away in the surface through contribution. And people have to be able to contribute in some way. Hmm. And so if I, if, I feel, if I feel like I'm contributing, if I feel my work is meaningful, then I will be happy. So we don't just want to aim for happiness. I think we want to aim for meaningful happiness. Who thought we'd go to improv to go in deep on the feels, mate? But I, I, I definitely get it. <laughs> there was an interesting one that you said about this hedonic treadmill because I know exactly the or that the anticipation of like I'll be happy when dot 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 when dot 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 when dot 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 like it, it's such a dangerous thing, and especially as you know, like as a I guess an entrepreneur and someone who's done some stuff. I've never really stopped. Like it, the three times I've kind of had some big wins, I've never stopped and celebrated it. I'm always just like, next, yeah. next, next. And it's yeah. not so much that I'll be happy when that happens, but then it's also the, the the opposite is true. Sometimes if all you want to do out there is go and smash it, you don't actually stop to enjoy that you're smashing it. You're just like, and more, and next, and next. And it becomes really tough to live now when you're, when you're I guess, so ambitiously trying to push forward and, and that becomes something which can become a, a rabbit hole. You know, like if you look at, you know, some people are just, purely driven by money you're never going to win because there's always going to be more you're never going to win yeah. oh, it's only 10 mil sweet i could do 20 it's only 20 i can do 50 i only do 50 and then i look at a billionaire and i feel like <laughs> shit because he's got 10 billion and i've got 100 million i'm like what are we yeah, flipping yeah. doing here you know so yeah. but these these cycles they obviously feel i guess psychological but everyone's own like is each sort of individual drawn to a specific type of thing that they're going for like do you know what i mean like some obviously driven by are these personal drivers or are these like what are these well, there can be, you know, a lot of the can come from, you know, our insecurities. And, you know, um, I, I knew someone who um, there was walking around the, the theater, the covert theater, and uh, he would just been telling me how he had um, at the age of about the same age as me, uh, you know, late 40s. And this a couple of years ago, and he said, um, you know, I've, I've finally achieved, I'm finally financially free. I have enough investments and so forth, where I don't have to work. I said, that's awesome. He goes, yeah, but I'm, I just don't know what to do with myself. My whole life was because I came from poverty. You know, I thought I'm not going to be poor. So now I'm finally, now I'm finally got the money and I, and I don't know what to do. Like, and he said to me, you know, and I've just opened a theater during a global pandemic. He goes, you're so lucky. <laughs> and it's like, isn't it funny? Because <laughs> he goes, you've well, got purpose. You've got purpose. Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, being, uh, I can relate to that a, a little bit, maybe potentially a bit more logistically because 
I was here in the States going through my green card process. The borders were shut. I couldn't travel, couldn't do anything. And I'm literally sitting around every day with a technically expired B1, B2 visa. I can't work here in the States. I can't travel back to New Zealand to do anything. I don't really have anything to do. I'm kind of sitting there going, like, now what? Like, what do we, what do we do? And you start to, it, it kind of gets crazy. And I remember hearing this story when I was real young in my early teens. A friend of mine, his good mate, won the lotto. And he was 23 years old or something. One's right. lotto, wins a million bucks, whatever it is. And he goes out, you know, buys the car free, uh, buys a house freehold, buys buys the car, writes it off in the first, you know, flipping couple of months because he was speeding, whatever it was, buys another one. And after eight months, he went back to building full time for two reasons. One, he was sitting at home bored, but he was what the, the bit that got him was he'd wake up with nothing to do because he quit his job the same day. He won lotto. Yeah. is all of his friends still had jobs and then he can't justify taking everyone halliboarding all, every day of it, you know? So yeah, he's yeah. kind of sitting around waiting for his friends on a Friday night, like, what are we going to do? What are, but it becomes these things of what you sort of go at. In your experience, you've obviously been in the game for a minute now, getting into a couple of decades now, understanding people and, and the way people are interacting. When you've seen different workplaces, as a high-performance business coach, has there been like, a consistent thread of one or two or three things, which is just a, it's a loop, the same thing over and over and over and over and over that you've seen, which the average pitch on the outside wouldn't either recognize or understand, but that you you just know to be true. So you're asking other, the, some keys around the hype. Well, I think outside of the psychological safety, do you mean? Yeah, like, like what have you seen in the workplace, I guess, from you know all your experience of this high-performance coaching when you've been dealing with them? Are there recurring themes or, 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 or red flags well, or something? Which yeah, well, become... definitely, definitely. I mean, obviously, the leadership is so important, right? So the leaders, the leaders set the culture. You know, the old Turkish proverb, the fish rots from the head down. So the opposite is true as far as, uh, you know, so if the leadership's not right, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to cascade down. So if there's any, if there's any kind of... Um, slight you know uh, divide between a leadership team so that becomes a chasm for the rest of the organization they just do not um they don't connect it becomes you know me versus you us versus them so the whole thing is you've got to get those leadership teams um uh, galvanized and connected and aligned so they're all on the same path because otherwise you're just going to have an organization going off in different directions the other thing is also i think uh, in new zealand um uh, we're very polite we're kind of you know, we're quite passive aggressive and so that will also be one of the killers of, um, yeah, you can be in a really polite environment and it doesn't seem like there's conflict, but it's all passive. So that's kind of stuff that you need to root out as well. So we need to have a little bit more candor in how we have our conversations. Uh, as so, well. uh, so alignment, I totally agree. And the second one in terms of disagreement or momentum moving forward, that is a very, like in America, that shit does not fly. It is <laughs> like, this is like, I'm not saying it's like in America, that's how we do it. It's not there, but it's very much uh, more, I guess, forthcoming with opinion. And I don't know if that's more of a cultural thing or whatever. Yeah. Talk to me about how <laughs> you've got a, you've got a, um, you've got a business. Everyone's verbally polite, but it's full passive through all of it. Explain how culture shifts and how that can move to be more progressive and better if they start to do the things which they should be doing. Because this is a very, yeah. probably massive thing for New Zealand businesses, huge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, one of the things, you don't, for starter, you don't, you don't change culture, right? You change the individuals in them. So you've got to shift, you've got to shift the people because it's the people is the culture. Like if someone goes home, there's no value in culture in the organization. It's all within the people. So you've got to shift the individuals. Um, and so for me, cultural change starts one at a time. 
but it's really looking at the emotional again looking after people's emotional side of things that psychological safety again inside the organization if people don't feel safe they'll be covering their ass the whole time they just won't take a risk you can't have a innovative a creative innovative organization in a low trust environment because no one's going to put themselves forward so it's kind of it all flows it all flows from that the model i teach is you, know, you need courage and vulnerability that flows into um the kind of psychological safety the high trust that then flows into open and honest communication yeah because if i feel safe then i can say what needs to be said and i won't feel i won't feel like you're going to come back and you know something's going to come back and bite me in the ass and i'll, I'll get rid of the office politics and the patch protection because we're working together because i feel safe because i feel like i know you yeah and then of course if you've got that open and honest communication that will flow into the creativity and the collaboration that's innovation can only pop out of creativity as I said before, money follows value. So if you're offering more innovation, more value, then you're going to make, be more commercially successful. But it all starts back with, you know, do you have an environment where the leaders are being courageous and showing that they don't have all the answers and they're kind of willing to connect with their people? And then that will it will, it will flow from that. So that, that saying of, you know, the, the fish rots from the head down or, or, or leaders from the top down, I totally agree. Who do you feel in your 20 years of been in the game or, or even more have been some of the most courageous leaders that New Zealand has seen and why? Uh, one of my favorite leaders is uh, Sir Bob Harvey. Um, I was inspired by him when he was running the Waitakere uh, City Council. I think he was like six terms or something ridiculous like that. You know, he was um, and just, and then he moved into the uh, ports, ports of Auckland. He was, he was running the whole waterfront development. And if you've seen what the waterfront looks like now, as opposed to how it used to look like, that's just an amazing We need a stadium. Story. That's what we need, though. We need a stadium. <laughs> yeah. I want a flipping stadium. I don't want to have to flip and walk up to Eden Park. But I, although I, I'm friends with the crew at Eden Park, but I would just love a stadium right in the city. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, Continue I on. No, no, no. I, I, I don't disagree with you. That'd be great. <laughs> you got that prime real estate. We've got shipping containers on it. I kind of go, ah. But um, yeah, so so I, he's someone, and I interviewed him for my um, storytelling book because I watched him present and he was just a fa fabulous storyteller. So he's probably one of my, um, in fact, I've, I, I've actually got him to be, I'm so impressed, I've got him to be the patron of the theatre, so, which he agreed to. So yeah, awesome. he's, he's, he's one of my, probably one of my favourite leaders. Um, he kind of ticks that box as being, a, you know, he's visionary, uh, but he also brings people along on the, on the journey as well. Now, is that done more through talking or listening? Uh, both. I mean, the thing with storytelling is there's three parts to it. There, there's the story listening, the story, what I call story catching. You got to catch the stories that people are saying so you know where they're coming from. So when you're going to lead people, you've got to get alongside them first, right? You got to pace alongside them, hear where they're going, and then you've got to kind of show them the direction you got to go to. And then there's the story crafting. So you got to spend time crafting the stories, and I know that he does. Uh, and then, you, then there's the storytelling piece. So they're the three parts of storytelling. Story catching, now, story crafting, storytelling. Now, when it comes to this, do you think that what percentage of good leaders in New, what percentage of leaders in New Zealand do you currently think are good storytellers? Uh, not enough. <laughs> like what we're we thinking, you... what, 10, 20, 30? Um, well, obviously I don't see everybody, but um, the ones that I've seen, there's definitely room for improvement. Yeah, uh, I, I really love uh, Malcolm Johns. He's the CEO of Christchurch Airport. Um, I've seen him in action, and he's a great yeah he's a great storyteller. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think of who else straight off the top. Uh, worked with Steve Steve Bayless is a very good storyteller as well. He was um, I think he's moved more to the directorship now. He's not a CEO, but uh, yeah, there are there are people out there are good storytellers out there for sure. 
um, but we could definitely have definitely have more. I think we have more leaders telling. I think if leaders can tell that story of the organization, especially the purpose story, why they exist, they're telling that story more. Uh, then you'll definitely have more engaged staff. Yeah, and, and then when you layer that with you know the vulnerability and authenticity and the the open comms from it, and we definitely saw that a lot through COVID. I I, I saw a lot of um, good leaders and bad leaders get exposed. Um, because it, it was all transparent, they couldn't hide behind anything. It was all it was all there for the taking. So, coming out of COVID, this reconnection that we're seeing, like we're now coming into technically, I guess, the first summer in what three years, where it's open, it's bubbling again, everything's sort of hyping back up. How do you how do you prioritize the level of like how high of a priority should it be? for have a strategy around this reconnection with actual people getting together better and what do, what do you think that looks like or what should business leaders be actually thinking about um coming into the summer yeah i've got i've had conversation with um andrew fairgray at uh, two degrees and he's been talking about like because i've just had their merger with um all connor was it focus and he's been talking about like the number one job is people coming back is just to connect so i've run i've actually run a few sessions with different organizations called connect how to be human again Right. So how do we, how do we do human, like just face to face? And uh, I've had a number of comments of just people saying like, hey, how valuable it is, but also how they've suffered from being on screens for the last two years. And so, you know, and technology is great, but I mean, this would be very different if we're sitting in a room, you know, uh, each of us having a whiskey, um, you know, it'd be a very different conversation than we are coming across on the screen. So um, technology is awesome. It's allowed us to do things. It was great for the COVID, but if we're looking for, you know, just in how creative innovation works is those little kind of side conversations that you don't have when you're on a screen. You have when you're walking past each other in the in the hallway or on the staircase and those kind of incidental bumps uh, together, that the stuff is going gonna, is gonna to miss. So I think organizations really have a big question. They still want to keep that flexibility, but at some point, you know, is it like a mandatory day where everyone's in on the office so those teams can gel and spend time together and really connect? Because, you know, uh, Business is personal. Business is people. So to that, right, there's this thing that you did, how to be human again. How do you be human again after COVID to reset? What what does that <laughs> what is the what is the the step formula? Because I, I I really do agree. There's um, you know, the way I kind of felt looking at it through COVID was the decision makers, I mean, yes, I, COVID has proven that technology can create a whole bunch of efficiencies through the business and save a whole bunch of time and blah, 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 like park all that. So there's efficiency in the middle, but it felt like the decision makers at the top or the creativity side or whatever is needed. It got validated that you needed humans more than ever. So to that point mm. around how to be human again, how do you think we try to be human again? Well, the, the essence of improvisation is connection. So um, like I talked before about being present, you could do a meditation and be self-connected with yourself, but improv is that kind of connection in that present moment with somebody else. So it's other-centric more than just self-centric. So um, I just did a session last week for Radius Care, um, you know, the aged care industry, and the whole day um, the, the CEO just said, the purpose of this day is just to have fun. Sure, we'll get some learning out of it as well. So to your point, you know, safety, fun, learning, so, but he said it was just around just to connect um, because then this is a conference that had been put off for like two years and we just and we just spent the I was with them for the day and we just spent folks just doing a lot of the improv exercises having that fun having that connection I would draw lessons out of it 
um, after the exercises, but they, you know, they walked away saying that was their best conference ever. Um, so yeah, so um, I, I ran a session with AUT universities for students, because it's not just people in the workplace, it's also students have been online for the last few years as well. Uh, and with all the anxiety around social media and so forth. So we ran a, um, a connect, um, how to be human again, build confidence, build connections um, session for them as well. And again, just use a lot of the improv exercises, just spending time and laughing. At the theater, we've created the laugh gym. So when you, we know when people laugh together, it increases um, connection. So it's our corporate subscription model where organizations can pay a monthly fee. They get that fee and tickets and they can use it for their teams to come in or reward staff and so forth. So the laugh gym is another way of, um, we've got a number of organizations that have signed up for that. And we see them just coming into the theater, which is, again, as I said, laughter is the fastest way for people to connect. Isn't it interesting how we can send rockets to Mars, we can do all the stuff, but it takes looking at the eye, through the eyes of a child to simplify things down to fun and connection for adults to realize that's that's as simple as life needs to be. Yeah, yeah. I had a guy. I had a guy. Um, we did some. Um, uh, had a guy come over. We we're doing. I can't remember. Was it was he um, moving a house move? I think to be moving in. He saw my car. And I got the license plate. Uh, improv bandits. And it was, it's not, it's not my car, which was a Mercedes. And he's kind of looking at, looking at that going, so what's, what's improv? And I was explaining it to him. He's, he's, you can see him looking at the car and he's kind of going, so what do you do? And I'm trying to explain, <laughs> trying to explain what I did. And he's, and he's basically saying, and he, he said a bit, so, oh, so basically you teach adults how to play, eh, bro? <laughs> so I was kind of like, yeah, I'm stealing that. That's what I do. I teach adults how to play again. Yeah. Why do you think that we're like so many of, for, like I love play. I think I, I, I'm almost like instead of safety, fun, learning, I'm always just like fun, fun, learning, and then maybe there's a bit of safety because even if it's sketchy, <laughs> I'll still like na navigate it through. How did how did we lose? How did how did we lose our way? We caught up on ego and drama and position and title. We get caught up in the rat race of this corporate ladder that's just temporary relevance based on the cog wheel of big corporate life. Like how did we stuff this up? <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly those things. Um, if you're familiar with Alan Watts, he has a lovely uh, four-minute um, video called uh, "Life Is Not a Journey." He says basically the you know the universe is essentially playful; uh, it's not going anywhere. And he says we've used the wrong metaphor. We've used the like life as a journey as the metaphor, whereas what we should have used is life as a dance, yeah, or life as life as um, a piece of music. You don't dance to kind of end at a certain point in the room. You dance because that's the dance. And I think that's the same thing for life. We've kind of been conditioned to think historically that, you know, work is the necessary evil and that we need to do it in order to make money to survive. But really, we can make it much more uh, meaningful than that. And again, um, I use the metaphor that life is a game. None of us get out of it alive. Right. And it's so we just got to try and, you know, we all lose. We all lose. <laughs> well, yeah. But, you know, no, 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 I don't know if we lose because no one's ever failed at dying. Like everyone's done it successfully. Oh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we all we all do it well. Um, and so yeah, so I think that I think the metaphor is more around rather than the journey thing and you know, got to got to get there, got to get there. I think it's really is like how do you enjoy that moment? Um, mm. And I went through the same thing. Like I, I caught myself on that treadmill. I had um, so my programs were being. I got licensed by David Covey, so the son of Stephen Covey from Seven Habits of uh, Highly Effective People fame, uh, and we had licenses into uh, China, Japan, um, into Australia. Um, I was looking to relocate to Silicon Valley in 2016, right before the Trump election, 
and I was going to look at grow, 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 grow. And then I just kind of, but I was, I, I was, have you heard of builder syndrome? The, no, the builder, go on. The, the builder who fixes everybody else's house, but their own, you know, the, oh, yeah. the panel beater who drives the beat up. So I was the high performance coach, but not living a high performance lifestyle. So I was living on planes, uh, eating hotel food, working ridiculous hours away from family. And I just, I did the improv festival in, um, in Hawaii in yeah, 2015 and just thought, what the hell am I doing? Right. You know, I was overweight. I was, you know, do, do what I say, folks, just don't do what I do. And I just kind of went, um, I went through my own, I went through my job program, which is my own program. And I went through my values and my purpose and how I contribute. And when I'm at my happiest, and it's when I'm doing improv, you know, I'd gone from full-time improv to like 96% corporate coach and speaker and facilitator. So that's when I decided to do, uh, get back and, and, and do the theater. So now I do get to do both and I'm much happier because I've got that balance. It just so happened I didn't have a global pandemic in my contingency plan but people are like oh i bet you bet you regret doing that and i'm like absolutely not so i didn't do it then i'd never do it now so uh, all i had to do was since i'd done it i just had to make sure it survived um so that's been um you know so, you, so we, it's very easy to get caught on that hamster wheel of life just the same day repeating over and over again so you've got to be your own police officer and, and and make sure that you're coming back to your values what drives you um how do you contribute and that gives you that kind of that, that meaningful, uh, that meaningfulness. On that note, we fast forward another three, five, ten years. You're going to be on planes and trains all over the show, or what does the world look like for Way Jackson in 2040? I'm living my dream because uh, having my own creative space is what I wanted 20 odd years ago, and I'm back here now. And we've got, um, we, you know, we're we're breeding the next Kiwi generation of comedians, of writers, because we're moving into sketch comedy as well as improv comedy directors. Uh, we do, um, we got, we're looking to get our improv program into more schools throughout New Zealand. So rather than being, you know, f from a, from a mental health point of view, giving these kids the tools to uh, manage life and deal with ambiguity, all the stuff that we learn in improv. Um, yes, yeah, so we're looking to really get that up and running. So, um, no, so I won't be, won't be looking, not, not looking for the global domination anymore. That kind of chapter has closed and now it's more around how do I serve, uh, in my local community. We've got like this afternoon, I've got, um, kids coming in from Mount Hobson, which is a school for autistic kids. They're coming into the theater to do, um, improv and learn those skills uh, as well. So that's kind of, it's really now, how do I serve? I love it. On that note, brother, really appreciate it. Congrats on the massive, um, massive effort and kind of the cool insights from all the world of improv into business. And it's a lot, lot closer than many, many people may think. Best of luck, brother. Really appreciate your time. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, mate.